0: Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English, with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 440 for April 26th. 2015. This week, sometimes a single event or a single topic is enough to fill the entire program. That's the case this week with Adobe Lightroom 6. In short circuits, looking for ways that bad guys might hack vehicles that are connected to the Internet of Things, and a few more Microsoft 10 tea leaves. In spare parts only on the website, you can't get coffee from your smartphone, but you can pay for it with one. A new app promises to encrypt text messages and let you fix autocorrect errors, and a sort of dress code for wearable devices. I have to wonder does anybody at Adobe ever sleep? The latest version of Lightroom is now available to members of Adobe's Creative Cloud Photography Program or as an upgrade for those who have a Lightroom 5 Perpetual license. It's an upgrade you won't want to miss, because there are a lot of new and improved features. Digital cameras can do remarkable things, but the camera, whether it's film or digital, is really just the starting point. In the days when film was king, magic happened in a dark room that smelled like a chemistry lab. Today's post-camera magic happens at the computer, all this thanks to Adobe Lightroom. One of the most impressive improvements is high dynamic range merges with only two images. Take a look on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see an image that's the best I could do with a single exposure. Highlights are blown out, and there's no detail in the shadows. The image you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website is the middle exposure, the so-called correct one that the camera created when I set it to make bracketed exposures at two stops over. And two stops under, and the one in the middle. You'll see details in the mid-range, but the rest of the image, not so much. And because of Adobe's magic, I can throw away this image. What I need are the bad images, one that's two stops over. In that image, the shadows have detail, but the highlights are unrecoverable. By itself, this would be a horrible image and at two stops under, there's detail in the highlighted area, but the shadows are so blocked up that there's no detail there. By itself, this would be a horrible image. Adobe did provide a couple of example images that I could use to show off the HDR merge, but you know me, I'd rather pick my own images, and preferably ones that will challenge the process. So what I had at that point was two images that differ by a total of four f-stops, Adobe recommends two f-stops. Part of the image is in direct sunshine, the rest is in shadow, and what's in shadow is dark wood. This is a pretty difficult test. One of the most surprising features of Lightroom though is that you don't need three, or five, or seven, or even nine images to create an HDR image. Instead, you need just two images. One should be one or two stops overexposed, the other one or two stops under. And the images should be raw, not processed TIFFs or JPEGs, as is the requirement of most applications that create HDR images. And when you do the work, there's not a lot to select. Lightroom's defaults seem to be accurate. Adobe recommends images be one stop over and one stop under, but you know that I never give software the benefit of an easy path, so mine, as I keep mentioning, are two stops over and two stops under. The one setting you might want to change is the deghost amount. This is useful in images where motion has occurred, such as outside with leaves or foliage in the wind. Well, I didn't have anything moving. This was an image of a desk. So check out Lightroom's merge of just two images, one two stops over, one two stops under. And I keep repeating that because the entire process seems so magical. You'll see detail even in the deepest shadows and none of the highlights are blown out, but my socks? (laughs) They're blown off. This is an amazing image. Be sure to click the image itself and see a bigger view of it. As it turns out, that's just the beginning and Adobe did a lot with merges this time around. Now you can merge a bunch of raw images into a panorama. As I said, Adobe provides reviewers with files that can be used to understand how the new features work. They're handy but I'd rather work with my own images when possible, and I'd prefer to make those images difficult for the application to deal with. A lot of people choose a wide-angle lens when they're trying to create a panorama. That's a bad idea. So I at least did one thing right. I elected to use a slight telephoto lens. I picked a 55-250mm to 250 millimeter zoom lens, and set it at 55 millimeters, and because my camera has a cropped sensor, that's the equivalent of about 88 millimeters on a full-frame 35 millimeter camera. The camera should be set to manual exposure to avoid differences from frame to frame, and autofocus should be turned off. I did that, too. Ideally, a camera that's capturing images for a panorama should be on a tripod. I held the camera by hand. In most cases, the software expects the images to be processed from left to right, I captured the images from right to left. And finally, panoramas often work best when the images taken are in vertical format, so I turned the camera horizontally. Also, common sense suggests creating two or three groups of panorama images, I created just one. My starting point was 10 RAW images, each about 28 megabytes. That's one of the first points to note about Lightroom's Panorama Merge, it uses RAW files. That means it will have an enormous amount of information to work with. And you don't want to apply any adjustments before you do the merge. Do the merge first, then add adjustments later as you need them. I selected 10 raw images and started the process by right-clicking one of the pictures and choosing Photo Merge Panorama from the menu. Panoramas require a projection type. By default, Lightroom will select one for your images, and it'll probably pick the right one. Unless you understand exactly why you might prefer spherical, cylindrical, or perspective projection, I'd recommend just letting Lightroom make the choice. So after clicking the button, you might think that this would be a good time for me to go out for lunch, or maybe for an extended ocean voyage. I mean, we're dealing with 10 raw images here. Lightroom has to analyze those 10 raw images, figure out they're in reverse order, determine how to stitch them together, and provide a preview. That ought to be at least an hour's work, shouldn't it? Well, a few seconds later, yes, seconds, the preview appeared. And this is on a computer that's several years old. Granted, it has a lot of memory, it has a fast disk drive, and I had the foresight to buy a fast processor when I assembled the computer, but still, it is a few years old. Lightroom selected spherical projection, If you want to see what cylindrical or perspective projection looks like when you do this, just click the appropriate button, and Lightroom will quickly modify the preview. As it was, all that was left for me to do was click the Merge button. And while Lightroom created the finished panorama, I was able to continue working on other tasks in the program. That's possible because the merge runs in the background. The process took about two minutes. You'll see it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The panorama is 30,994 pixels wide and the file is 469 megabytes. Because the camera was handheld, cropping was required to eliminate areas with no data. So check out the finished image on the TechBiter worldwide website, and you can even download the full thing, the full 30,994 pixel image. I downsampled it quite a bit and converted it to a JPEG. But even then, it's still 12 megabytes. And Adobe's engineers apparently weren't satisfied with two blockbuster editions. They added a third. What happens if you want to identify the people in 47,975 images in Lightroom, some in old pictures from scanned slides and film, and others from more than 10 years of digital photography? And what if you haven't bothered to tag most of those images with names? Facial recognition is some additional new magic. It scans either the images you're currently looking at or every image on the disk. It's your choice. It then identifies similar faces and allows you to add names. Now let me say at this point that choosing to search the entire catalog of 47,975 images was probably not the best decision I've ever made, particularly during a week in which I was attempting to review all of the new features. The task does go into the background, and it's possible to do other work in Lightroom while the program looks for faces, but still, it took a long time. As the process continues, you can select one or more images of a person whose identity you've confirmed, and Lightroom will begin suggesting other pictures that might contain that same person. I selected some pictures of me scanned from slides long, long ago. Lightroom then suggested other images that might be me as a child. Many of them were. Some, though, were pictures of my daughters when they were about the same age. Others weren't close matches at all. What's nice about all this, though, is that you can select several, several dozen, or possibly even several hundred images that Lightroom suspects might contain the same person, and then with a single click, accept them all. The names are added to the metadata as special name tags. They're special because unlike other meta tags, they are not exported with the images. With a nod to privacy and security, these special tags are retained only on your computer. Other metadata, type of camera, exposure values, things like that, those will be exported with the images. The names are not. And Lightroom might surprise you with the faces it finds. One of the images it found was a photo of the former mayor of Columbus, Buck Reinhardt, in a parade. The head size was tiny, yet Lightroom thought I might want to identify him. So I did. Undoubtedly, you're wondering how long the process of scanning took. Well, I'm not entirely certain. My guess is that Lightroom scanned nearly 48,000 files and exported the faces from them in about 10 to 14 hours. All I know for sure is that the process had been continuing for several hours when I went to bed, and that it was complete only after I left the house the next morning. But wait, as they say on late-night television, there's more. Adobe made some impressive improvements to the slideshow module in this version. The slideshow feature was introduced at the very beginning, but it hasn't received a lot of attention for several versions. Why is that? I mean, it's not like Adobe software engineers have been busy with anything. Lightroom 6 adds a bunch of new features here. There's a pan and zoom option. Think Ken Burns' effect. It's in its first iteration, It's an all or nothing feature, so we should probably expect some enhancements in future versions. The module also now is able to listen to your soundtrack, detect beats, and then transition from one image to another on the beat. This, however, is another first iteration feature, and sometimes the beat it detects is too fast for comfortable transitions. Perhaps an option is coming in a later version that would allow the user to specify transitions on every second, third, fourth, or fifth beat. There isn't enough in the slideshow module to compete with applications that are designed explicitly to create slideshows, but it's still an excellent addition to the world's most versatile photography workflow application. And then there's portability. Although access to Lightroom files via lightroom.adobe.com isn't new with this release, now would be a good time to take a look at it if you haven't already. Adobe provides two gigabytes of storage. Now you might think that's not very much for a backup system. And you would be absolutely right except for one thing. It's not intended to be a backup system. Web access to Lightroom files is intended to provide a way to view and share work and process files and to store commonly used images or other design elements for use by various other creative cloud applications. So let's say you visited the Wilds, the Columbus Zoo's remarkable animal preserve in eastern Ohio. Perhaps you've taken 500 pictures, and now it's time to work your way through them, mark the rejects, and flag others for later review. Instead of doing this at the computer, you'd prefer to sit in an easy chair with your tablet, or maybe even your phone. Or maybe the pictures are at home, and you'd like to review them during lunch at the office or perhaps even share them with some of your co-workers. That's what this service is for. You can review the entire group of images and flag them for review, flag them for deletion, and rate them 1 through 5 stars. When you return home, you'll find the flags and ratings have all been applied to the images on your desktop computer. There is also a no-frills slideshow option on Lightroom.Adobe.com. And Adobe keeps improving previous enhancements. Gradient filters, for example. They're wonderful. In days long gone, photographers would buy radial filters for their lenses, and they'd use them to darken and add detail to a sky without affecting exposure on the ground. The trouble with filters on lenses was that you had only a single chance to get it right. Lightroom's gradient filters can be applied, modified, rotated, adjusted, and even have additional components added. Not just darkening, but modifying color, tint, contrast, highlights, and shadows, sharpness, detail, and But the trouble with Lightroom's gradient filter is that no matter how they're applied, they are still gradients, and as a result, they may affect parts of an image that you would prefer not to have affected by the filter. Lightroom 6 provides an answer to that problem. It's the new filter brush. To demonstrate the filter brush on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I decided to use an image provided by Adobe because it is an excellent example of the kind of image that would need this treatment. The image has a bright sky in the background, somewhat washed out, and an irregularly shaped rock in the foreground. A gradient filter applied to this image will either leave some of the sky unaffected, or the filter will affect the rock. Both of those options are bad, but adding needless modification to the darker area is usually the better of the two bad choices. And that's how I proceeded with the image. I applied the filter from the sky down into the area of the rock, but that makes the top of the rock too dark. To fix that problem, all I need to do is use the filter brush to remove some of the effect from the areas of the image where I don't want it. And actually, on the website, I ran through the entire process, starting with the original raw file. Whenever I import a new image, I turn on two actions by default to enable lens profile corrections and remove chromatic aberration. So I apply those actions to the image. You'll notice slight improvements over the basic lens geometry. Nearly any raw image does need a clarity boost, so I applied some clarity and increased the vibrance a bit. Vibrance and saturation are similar controls, but vibrance is more subtle, so I went for subtle here. Next, I selected the sky color, and reduced the luminance a bit to darken the sky, and add some apparent detail. Now it's time to use the gradient filter. I reduced the color temperature a bit, introducing more blue into the sky, dropped the exposure somewhat, and increased both sharpness and contrast. The result is perfect for the sky. Not so good on the rock, and not so good on the distant hills and buildings. So then I turned on Mask Visibility. The problem was obvious. The gradient filter, which you'll see in red, extends into areas where the reduced exposure and color modifications aren't wanted. So I enabled the filter brush and used it to paint away the gradient filter in the areas where I didn't want it. You'll see the result on the TechBiter Worldwide website. All of the effects are somewhat more pronounced than I would like them to be normally. I did that to clearly illustrate the differences between the original image and the modified image. And by the way, this is the kind of change that would be trivial to make in Photoshop with layers and masks. It is a very welcome addition to Lightroom. I did decide to use some of Adobe's images. You'll see them when you go to the TechBiter Worldwide website. All of the images are used to show off the new merge effect, a couple of panoramas, and one additional high dynamic range image. And the bottom line for Lightroom, well what'd you expect, 5 cats. This is the most comprehensive photography workflow application available. There's no question that Lightroom deserves its 5 cat rating. There is simply no other application that does so much and does it so well. Adobe continues its policy of offering Lightroom as a Creative Cloud component or with a perpetual license. I feel the best value for photographers is that $10 per month program that includes both Lightroom and Photoshop. If that seems like a lot of money, consider just how much you would pay for film and processing every month if you were still using film. And if you do want just the Lightroom Perpetual license, expect to pay $140 to $150, and every year or two, you'll pay another $80 or so for upgrades. You do the math. More information is available from the Adobe website. I have links to both the Creative Cloud version and the Perpetual license version. (laughs) In short circuits, here's a scary question. Could somebody hack your car? Developers of the Internet of Things seem to have learned little from history. Security is questionable at best as we race to connect every possible device with every other possible device. Perhaps it's time for someone to think about the risks. And perhaps somebody is. That somebody could be BT, formerly known as British Telecom. BT says that it is the world's oldest communications company. The Electric Telegraph Company, incorporated in 1846, developed a nationwide communications network in Britain. This week, BT announced the launch of BT Assure Ethical Hacking for Vehicles, a new security service designed to test the exposure of connected vehicles to cyber attacks and to help develop security solutions. Connected vehicles, which range from passenger cars to trucks and buses, or could include things like bulldozers and forklifts, they all rely on Wi-Fi and Bluetooth or other mobile data links to provide onboard features and value-added services. Connectivity allows predictive systems to bypass traffic jams, reduce carbon emissions, improve safety, and increase vehicle performance, all pluses. But the prevalence of these technologies raises concern about the ability of hackers to gain access to and control of the essential functions and features of vehicles, as well as for others to use information on drivers' habits for commercial purposes without the consent or even the knowledge of the operators. BT says that its goal is to identify vulnerabilities by imitating hacker attacks and then providing recommendations to mitigate the problems. BT Assure Ethical Hacking for Vehicles includes a range of tests targeted at the attack surfaces of the vehicle. Attack surfaces include common interfaces that may be available inside the vehicle Bluetooth links, USB ports, the DVD drive, for example, as well as external connections such as links to mobile networks or power plugs. Tests are intended to examine end-to-end security by verifying all the systems that interact with the connected vehicle, The ultimate objective is to identify vulnerabilities that will allow unauthorized alteration of configuration settings or that would introduce malware into the vehicle. Some of the potential attack vectors identified so far include laptop computers used by maintenance engineers, infotainment providers, and other supporting systems. Take a quick look at Microsoft Windows 10 tea leaves. It seems clear that Microsoft is nearing completion of Windows 10. Windows 8.1 users now receive occasional messages on screen promoting the technical preview, even though Microsoft's website still warns that the preview edition shouldn't be used on production machines. Microsoft pushed out build 10,061 in the fast circle on Thursday of this week Development seems to be a bit ahead of schedule, with release anticipated during the summer. How about July? Advanced Micro Devices is the second largest manufacturer of CPUs for computers, and AMD's president and CEO Lisa Su recently said on a call with investors and journalists that the Windows 10 launch would occur at the end of July. Because of that, said Sue, AMD is expecting a bit of a delay to the normal back-to-school season inventory build-up. That might have been an unintentional slip, or not. Who knows? Microsoft is still sticking with this summer. The launch is expected to occur worldwide, 190 countries in 111 languages, but nobody at Microsoft is willing to specify a date. Clearly, AMD is in a position to be advised well ahead of time what Microsoft's intentions are, but the date could still be a mistake. Or a trial balloon. Or just some clutter on the radar. The Windows 10 technical preview is clearly nearing an end, though. There's a conference later this month, and we'll probably know more then. It's generally expected that Microsoft will release the name of the new browser, currently still called Project Spartan, at that conference. In spare parts only on the website, you can't get coffee from your smartphone, but you can pay for it with one. A new app promises to encrypt text messages and let you fix autocorrect errors. And a sort of dress code for wearable devices. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.